Well, good morning, everyone. I feel excited about being here this morning and sharing the Word of God again. The Word of God is powerful, and if it falls onto good soil in an honest heart, it produces good fruit. We're going to read our text first here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, reading out of the ESV, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want to look at this passage from maybe a a slightly different angle than what we usually look at it through, uh, because usually the focus is on how God has uh, saved us from our sinful state and he's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and he has prepared us for good works, and it's through his grace that we've been saved, and we focus on the transformation and the new life that we have. But this morning I want to look at um, the beginning of the passage and how it brings out something about our enemy. Now I know that we've often heard something like, um, glance at your enemy, but fix your your gaze on Jesus or something like that, where we don't focus primarily on our enemy. We just glance at him. We know his schemes. We're not ignorant of them, but our focus is on Christ. So this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time glancing at our enemy, okay? So we want to be aware of what his schemes are and of how he attacks us. And we want to know who is our enemy? What is our enemy? How do we define what is our enemy Um, so that we can be strategic about coming against uh, his attacks? Um, So what would you say if someone asked you, who's your enemy as a follower of Jesus? What is your enemy? Anybody? This is not a trick question. Okay, you had to get them all three all at once, right? (laughs) The world, the flesh, the devil. So this passage actually brings out all three, um, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think sometimes we wrestle with with knowing, so is this this an influence that's coming from the world, or is this just my flesh, 
or is this an attack from the devil? And depending on what it is, our tactic for fighting it may be a little different, right? So how do we know what is our primary enemy? Is it primarily the devil coming at you with attacks, with thoughts of discouragement or thoughts of lust or thoughts of anger or, or emotions of, of whatever? Or is it primarily your flesh that you're dealing with, desires that are against God? Or is it influences from the outside? Is it, is it the world? Is it uh, Facebook or is it you know, whatever influences in your life that, that gets you drugged down? And how do, you, how do you determine which is which and how do you launch a strategic attack against the kingdom of darkness and against what the enemy is trying to do in your life? So imagine that you were a general in World War I and the Germans have launched an all-out attack on France. Their, their um, idea is if they hit France really, really hard and knock them out, then they can switch to the Eastern Front and they can attack uh, the Soviet Union and, and take over there as well. So their primary focus right now is France. And they've come down through Belgium into northeastern France and they've la- launched an all-out attack on your country. You're outmanned and outgunned. Just within the first month, you've lost more than a quarter million of your best soldiers on the front lines. Uh, as the war progresses... Um, the, the French death toll approaches a million and you're wondering what to do, how to keep the enemy from taking more territory than they already have, how to push them back. Um, you end up down in the trenches. Both sides end up uh, in, in the trenches with machine guns and whoever launches an offensive basically just sends their guys to run across the field and they get mowed down by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. So you don't know what to do. But there's other effects. It's not just the enemy in their trenches. There's other, other effects that start to trickle down that you hadn't anticipated. There's food shortages. Food supplies are being cut off. Civilian casualties begin to climb, not just because of the enemy, but because of malnutrition and lack of supplies. Manufacturing, which is essential for keeping your military uh, supplied with arms, uh, begins to take a hit. You can't get raw materials and uh, civilian morale is down. Um, Morale everywhere begins to plummet. The Germans are occupying territory near your capital. An increasing number of families have lost their fathers, their sons, their brothers. And add to this, to all this mess, a new virus, an H1N1 uh, influenza A virus that is spreading rapidly and that is quickly becoming the worst pandemic in the history of the world. It's going to end up taking somewhere between probably 20 million and 100 million lives. Rather than targeting the very young and the very old and weak, as you would expect, this virus is targeting actually um, young adults, the, your, the most uh, important part of your population, the, the fighting age. Um, so you sit down with, with other generals and commanders, and you need to re-strategize. If we're going to win this war, we need to have a plan. We need to figure out what to do. We need to know our enemy. Who is your enemy? Is it the Germans that are down in the trenches with their machine guns? Is it 
the broken supply chain or the lack of food or the plummeting morale in France? Or is it the Spanish flu that's threatening to to wipe out more lives than the war? Actually, it, it did end up taking more lives than the war. Where do you focus? Strategically, you have to come up with a plan to win the war. And as a seasoned general, you know the answer. Your enemy is all of the above. If we focus on one and neglect any of the others, we'll lose the war. You know that in order to win this war, you're going to need a comprehensive strategy, one that looks at every element of the war. You know there's going to be civilians who are equipped to maintain uh, and reopen supply lines. Some of them are going to have to focus on food, not just for the soldiers on the front line, but for everyone. And you'll have uh, certain people whose job it is to engage the population, the general population, to put out positive propaganda, uh, telling them that we are going to win the war because a lot of them are discouraged. You'll have um, people, doctors and nurses, whose job it is to care for the sick and injured from the battlefield. And you'll have public health officials and people who are responsible to, to try and stem the spread of this pandemic, which is wiping out thousands of people in France, you'll have to look for the enemy everywhere. Why? Because it is everywhere. The enemy literally is everywhere. It's more than just the broken supply chains or malnutrition or sickness or broken spirit or low morale. It's all of the above. And if you don't fight from that perspective, you are not going to win the war. The reality is that in a war between countries, there's, there's thousands of factors that you have to take into consideration. I don't think that's an overstatement. There's thousands of factors that you have to take into consideration when you're fighting a war. And it's no different in our spiritual lives. We can so easily become focused on one aspect of the battle that we neglect another. And in fact, it seems like a lot of our life is uh, correcting imbalances of focus, uh, maybe re-strategizing and seeing where we have a blind spot, learning to build up the wall where there's a breach in our lives. We, we know that to know, we know that to have a winning strategy, we need to know enemy. And so we ask, who is our enemy? Is it the world? Is it? The flesh? Is it the devil? I think that in some ways, this is kind of the opposing trilogy to the Trinity, the Godhead. And we often struggle with the concept of three persons and one God. And I think we often struggle to keep a right perspective of our enemy because our enemy presents itself as, as a trilogy. There's the influence of the system of the world. There's our flesh in ourself, and there's the devil who comes at us from the outside. In all of our corrections, and I, I guess maybe swinging from one side to another, um, there's those who become exclusively focused on the dangers of this world. Think like, like the Amish. They, they, they believe that the primary threat to their spiritual well-being is outside influence, and if we can just cut off those influences will be safe, but they forget about the flesh and the devil. There's those that are so focused on their flesh, on making sure they're not giving any opportunities to the desires of their flesh, 
But they forget that they have an enemy from the outside who is attacking them in ways that they're not expecting. They forget that there's a devil who's walking around like a roaring lion looking, seeking whom he may devour. Then there's those who see the devil in everything, right? He's always the problem. And if you, uh, if you fall, the devil made you do it. And they forget that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires and enticed. They pray great prayers of warfare against the devil, but they underestimate their own weakness, their own propensity towards sin. They think that because they have been made alive in Christ, they're now immune to the desires of the flesh. And before they know it, they fall prey to the desires that were looking just underneath the surface because they didn't see them. To fight effectively, we have to understand the spiritual realities in which we live. And that's what this passage is about. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 is about. It's actually what chapter 1, 2, and 3 are about. It's about the spiritual realities that we live in. And I want to say this up front. Uh, looking at our enemy, he's a formidable enemy. He's extremely crafty. He knows what he's doing. He's been doing this for thousands of years, trying to destroy as many people as possible. But as we look at him, we don't have to be afraid. Read Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 3. Read Colossians chapter 1 and 2. You see it everywhere. This is from a standpoint of victory. Because Christ has defeated all three. He has defeated our flesh, which has been crucified with him. He has defeated the devil. He has robbed him of his power. He has defeated the kingdom of this world. So we can see it from a standpoint of victory and not of fear. I just want to make that clear up front as we look, as we zoom in a little closer onto our enemy. So what is the world? The Bible actually talks a lot about the world in the sense of the kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. It's a belief system, a a way of thinking. It's more than just material things. It's not just things, okay? We can so easily get sidetracked from what the kingdom of this world really is by the individual things in the kingdom of this world. The things that we end up having to use and possess. Wouldn't it be easy if it were just cars or iPhones or electricity or what? It would be so much easier, wouldn't it? If we could just eliminate some of those things and figure out what is this world and just take them out of our life and then we'd be safe. 1 John 2.16 says, all that is in the world. There it is, everything. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Sum it up. It's, it's everything around us. It's the, the entire system. It's the way of thinking. Uh, 1 John 3 says, the world does not know us because it did not know God. The world can't know God, in fact. And it's opposed to us because it's opposed to God. The world hates you. 1 John 3.13. Did you know that? That the world hates you? When you walk out these doors, are you conscious of the fact the world hates you? That's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing because the world hated Jesus. So, of course, it's going to hate you if you are his follower. It is the system of the Antichrist. 1 John 4 Verse 1, many false prophets have gone into the world. 
They've gone into the world. That's, that's their domain. That's where they operate. In verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Do you get that? That's Antichrist. That is the thing that is directly opposed to the knowledge of Christ. That is what is operating in the world system. And the world, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. Because that's what the world is. That's the system that it's wrapped up in. It is comprehensively under the power of Satan. These are really important concepts for us because... When we look around us, it's not what we see with our physical eyes. We see a lot of good stuff, stuff that has a a good appearance on the outside. God doesn't see it that way. God sees a system that is comprehensively given over to the power of Satan. And the only way to get out of that system is to be transferred from that kingdom into an entirely different kingdom, the kingdom of light. The whole world lies in the power of of the evil one. First John 5:19. Ephesians 2 says, "Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. If you were born in the world to human parents, then you were part of that world system, which is antichrist, which is given over to the power of Satan. It is so important to get this because we don't want to believe that we were part of that system. We don't want to believe that that's naturally where we started out. It was as part of that world system. The Antichrist, false prophets, we were aligned with that agenda. If you want to see um, a clear picture of the, the system of this world, the, the way they think, the way they speak, Take some liberal arts college courses. It's just woven through all of that. The, the twisted perspective that says humanity is basically good and we can make it on our own. It's a system that is given over to the power of the evil one. And we have in the middle of that, we have mixed into it our flesh. Now, what is our flesh? Anybody? So our desires, the desires of, let's just boil it down a little more. It's the desires of our physical bodies, right? That's the flesh. It's really not that complicated. And I think the Bible often speaks of flesh almost almost as in a, in a spiritual sense. I don't know if that makes sense because it's not spiritual. It's fleshly as opposed to spiritual. But it speaks of the flesh as having a, a personality beyond just a human body. In other words, it's a system that that we're born with. It's a system of thinking and believing and desiring everything that is opposed to God. Now here's where it gets really personal. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins. You weren't just sick or needing improvement or encouragement, or three ways to improve your life, you were dead 
in trespasses and sins. That's every one of us. We were living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of our mind. Here's what here's one thing that I want you to get today, because I know that out of this sermon, you're probably going to remember maybe two or three lines in, in two or three weeks from now. That's just the way our brains work, right? How many of you remember more than three lines of a sermon that was preached a month ago? Probably hardly any of us. So here's one line I want you to get. The desires of the flesh and the natural mind are essentially evil and destructive, not good. Some of y'all don't believe that, right? This goes against our natural tendency to see ourselves as primarily good, essentially good. Like we see the desires of our body. I mean, we have so many desires that are fine, right? The desire to eat, the desire to sleep. God-given desires. But when the Bible speaks of the flesh, it speaks of a system of desires and thoughts and ideas that are in direct opposition to the nature of God. We have to understand this, otherwise we don't know what we're saved from. James 1.14 Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Those desires are pulling you away from truth and righteousness and from God. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, the desires of your flesh. Abstain from the desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you ever think of your desires as actively warring against the well-being of your soul? Which God wants to redeem and take to be with himself? Galatians 5.17 If you still think your flesh is good. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are in direct opposition for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying if you give yourself over to your flesh, that is what your flesh will take you to. Because that is what your flesh wants by nature. We're by nature the children of wrath. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, death, destruction. You still believe your flesh is mostly good? Mostly good desires? Man, we need a Jesus to redeem us from our flesh. Because our flesh was in opposition. Our flesh is in opposition to the will of God. We needed someone who would allow us to Die to our flesh, to ourselves. Number three, the devil. The devil is not your flesh, and your flesh is not the devil. Okay, you can't just mix the two and say one is the other and the, and, and the other is the first. It's not how it works. Demons are as real as the people sitting in this room. Look, look at the person next to you. Do you see somebody sitting there? Now, if you would have spiritual eyes, 
which we don't, not in this sense, we could look out here and we would likely see some demons around us. There are demons right now in this room who are actively seeking to destroy you. They want to oppose everything that God is doing in your life, and they want to turn it around and bring destruction and death. Now, sometimes I wish God would give us that ability, but it's best that he doesn't. We'd probably be freaked out lots of times if we could see with our physical eyes what is happening in the spiritual world around us. But it is as real as the physical. And because we can't see it with our physical eyes, we often just become completely oblivious to it. And we act as though Satan doesn't exist. Ephesians 2 says, We followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in, diso- in the sons of disobedience. In other words, we, we were drawn toward what he had to offer. We were under his power. We followed him. And we did it gladly, willingly. Because that's what our nature dictated. And we were slaves to ourselves. And our flesh said, that's the way to go. Follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. We were in agreement with his destructive agenda. You know, Satan came first to the Garden of Eden after, after God created Adam and Eve and put them in a perfect place with everything they needed. And he appealed, first of all, to the desires of her flesh and of her mind. What she thought seemed right and what she desired in her flesh. She looked at the fruit and it looked good. And she desired it. Her, that, that's what her flesh was geared toward. It, it saw the fruit and said, that looks good. And then she came into agreement with Satan's agenda of destruction when she said, did God really say? She came into agreement with that voice from the enemy. And it was her flesh making an agreement with what the enemy had spoken. She took the fruit. She ate it. She gave some to her husband. And just like that, the kingdom of this world was born. A system where human will, human desires are now in agreement and alignment with the devil who is in opposition to God. It's a system. The kingdom of Satan continues. The kingdom of this world continues. The the Bible says in the last days, people will deceive and, and they will be deceived, giving heed to doctrines of demons. We know how Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and he tempted him there. He came to him with specific temptations that appealed to the desires of the flesh of Jesus. And can I, just, can I just add this? Although Jesus did not, like us, have the sin nature, he had desires in his body that were in opposition to the will of God. Wrap your mind around that. That God, in the flesh, had desires. Because he was fully human, he had desires that were in opposition to the will of God. The difference between him and us is that he always brought those desires into subjection to the will of God. He never allowed them to become his master. We're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. So how do we overcome our enemy? How do we overcome the world? 
Well, we live as though we're not in the world, right? We live in the world, but not as though we're of it. We read that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We need to be born of God. Jesus said whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. That's why the two are in opposition. For this is the love of God. 1 John 5. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Did you get that? Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. It states it as though it's, it's just automatic. And it's, it's not automatic in the sense that we just relax and coast into it. But it is automatic in the sense that God has given us a new nature that is born of him. And as long as we yield ourselves to that nature, to that new nature, to the spirit of God working in us, we will overcome the world. It's that simple. You will overcome the world if you have been born of God. You won't overcome the world simply by trying to oppose it. You can't fight the world with your flesh because remember, your flesh is a part of that system. As long as you haven't been transferred from one kingdom into another, being born again, the world will conquer you. You will be of the world. You'll be part of it. The only way to get out of it is to be born again by the Spirit of God. First John 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. You have overcome the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And if you are in Christ, that is a reality. You can look at the systems of the world and the lusts of the flesh and the influences that are shouting at you whenever you walk out of these doors, and even if you're sitting here in these pews sometimes, the influences that are shouting at you, you can say, I have overcome you, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Recognize the kingdom of God. Here's another strategy for overcoming the world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's, it's a different kingdom. If it were of this world, my servants would fight. They would fight in, a, in an earthly way, but it is not of this world. 1 John 2 says, do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, flesh the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The antidote to loving the world is not just to cut off more things and figure out what you, what you have to cut out of your life so that you won't be exposed to the possibility of loving it. And yes, sometimes there are things you have to get rid of because they have become an idol to you. That's not primarily the antidote. You know what the antidote is? It's the love of God. Listen to this. 1 John 4. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It doesn't say the love that we have toward God. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love, that means you're staying in the reality of God's love for you, 
Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we also in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Do you get the do you get the message of overcoming in that of being in the love of God, dwelling in the love of God, dwelling in the reality of his love for us that overcomes the world that overcomes the love of the world because as he is so are we in the world. Remember where you belong. You don't belong in the world. Colossians 3, 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. This is confidence bordering on smugness, right? The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is something I keep seeing in 1 John, is that the difference between the world and the systems of this world is it's all temporary, it's passing away. But the love of God, the kingdom of God, God in us, abides forever. It's what endures forever. That's the difference between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. Permanent, eternal, versus temporary, passing away. And how unfortunate if you spend your entire life living for the kingdom of this world and you find out that it was just a very short time and then it passes away and it leads to destruction, eternal destruction. All right, so how do we overcome the flesh? First of all, we have to understand the deadness and depravity of our own flesh. Agree with what God says about it. Even if you look at it and say, looks mostly good, and if you're honest, it won't look mostly good. Agree with what God says about your flesh. Agree with what he says about the outcome of serving the desires of your body, your flesh. You were dead in trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means your flesh was not cut away. It, was, it had mastery over you. It was in control of your life. You did what your flesh dictated. That's called being dead. If we don't see first that we're dead, helpless, totally depraved, we won't see the magnitude of God's mercy toward us when he came to us while we were dead in trespasses and sins and he made us alive. While we were dead, it sounds like he just kind of broke into our, our, our deadness and, and just made us alive with Christ. We won't be able to see, unless we see our depravity and the way our flesh opposes God, we won't see what we've been saved from. We won't see the greatness of his love toward us according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Reckon yourself dead. Here's another key. Reckon yourself dead. Now, this can get a little confusing because we just saw that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And now, 
Romans 6 says we're supposed to consider ourselves, reckon ourselves dead. How does this work? Is this the same kind of death? You have to understand there was a deadness of spirit. Your spirit was dead previously. Your spirit could not live because it was dead in bondage to your flesh, which was very much alive and had mastery over you. And when Christ came, he took your spirit, which was dead. First of all, he took your flesh, which was alive and which was in control. And he crucified that flesh with himself on the cross. When he took your sin, my sin, on himself, he crucified that sin. It became dead and our spirit was raised to life, to live with his new life. So now instead of flesh alive and spirit dead, we have spirit alive and flesh dead. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, there it is, we died to our fleshly desires, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, that is death of the physical body. And it doesn't actually mean that you're just going to keel over with a heart attack, but it's death of your flesh. Your flesh is no longer going to be alive and in control. It's going to be considered dead with Christ. We know our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other other words, its power is taken away so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And that's true for us. If we've been raised with him, death, the death that was brought about by our own flesh and our desires no longer has dominion over us. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's an action that's required there. It's a reality. He's not just saying this is something that you have to think into existence, but it is a spiritual reality that you have been crucified with Christ. You are dead with him. You have been buried with Christ in baptism and you were raised again to a new life with him. And faith is simply believing that that is reality. It's believing that that is reality. Even when it's not immediately apparent In the flesh. Okay? Because there's a lot of confusion that comes in here because we look at our at ourselves and at the flesh that we still deal with and at the desires that we have that are in opposition to to God and we say, How can you call that dead? Because we see it is very much alive, speaking in human terms. God says, Reckon it dead. Believe that you have been crucified with Christ. You are dead. Your fleshly desires are no longer in control. Your spirit is alive to God. And your spirit yields to Him, not to the desires of the flesh. 
Here's the action that's required. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. What passions? The passions were supposed to be dead, right? They are dead in the sense that they do not have control or authority over your life anymore. You consider them dead because they have been crucified with Christ. However, we still have an obligation to yield ourselves to Christ and not to the desires of our flesh. Because if we yield ourselves back to the thing that was killed over here, it takes mastery over us again. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. Truth. Yield yourself to God. Yield your body to God as in an instrument of righteousness. Sin will have no dominion over you. How many of you would like to have that reality in your life? Raise your hand. Sin has no dominion over you. Imagine that. Sin has no dominion over you. That is the reality. When we die to our flesh and we become alive to God, sin no longer has dominion over us. Since you are not under law, but under grace. That's the external power, power coming from God that's working in us. That's working the renewed nature, the renewed mind, the renewed spirit that is now alive to God. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. All right, Paul. I think he's saying he had to break it down to something that we can understand here because we have our natural limitations. Do you feel that struggle? Do you feel the struggle of... Understanding that we are dead to sin, dead to ourselves, our flesh has been crucified with Christ, our fleshly desires, with its passions and desires, the Bible says, and we are alive to Christ and we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Christ. And then you walk out of these doors and you see desires in yourself that are opposed to God and sometimes you give over to one of those desires and you find yourself in Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Faith is getting a hold of the spiritual reality of this. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Put off the old self, Ephesians 4. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Do you hear that? The desires are deceitful. They appear to be good and fine. And you think it will be fine to just indulge them a little bit. But actually, you give yourself over them. You yield your members to the desires of your body and you will become a slave to them. And what is the end of that slavery? Destruction. Death. They are deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what God's offering every one of us. Put on the new self which is created in the likeness of God which has a mind that thinks like, like God thinks. You cannot regulate the flesh into righteousness. Here's another point that I want you to remember. You only remember two points. Okay? You cannot regulate your flesh into righteousness. Colossians 2 speaks so clearly to that, as does Galatians. Galatians is about the fact that our flesh cannot be regulated into righteousness. It has to die. It has to be dead. Colossians 2 says, If, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. And if you're from a religious background, you know very well how this works or how it doesn't work, right? Those precepts and regulations that you thought would prevent you from sinning, had no power over the desires of the flesh. Listen to this. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That means being hard on your flesh and preventing it from getting its own way. That's asceticism. And severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping The indulgence of the flesh. Did you hear that? You can regulate and regulate and regulate your flesh. And it will appear good on the outside. But this says it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because your flesh, the desires of your flesh are much, much more sneaky than all that. There's no law that's going to bring them into subjection. There's one thing that can fix it. And what it is? Death. The flesh has to be dead. Otherwise, it will take dominion over us. That's why we need the gospel. That's why there's nothing else that works. There's no religion that can legislate righteousness into existence. There's no religion that can be severe enough to keep us from becoming enslaved to the desires of our flesh and of our mind in the which we all once walked. I have been crucified with 
Christ. Galatians 2. It is no longer I who live, but God Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5, but I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Here it is. Walk in the Spirit. And how can you live in the Spirit? By the flesh being dead. It's over there, crucified with Christ. That part of me is no longer in control. It is no longer alive. I reckon it dead. I consider it to have died with Christ. In fact, not only did it die, it was buried with Christ in baptism. And the person who rose is a different person who lives with Christ. It is a spirit that is yielded to Christ and that needs to continue to yield itself to Christ. Because if you go back to that deadness and you yield yourself to it, you become enslaved to it again. But God, Ephesians 2, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. Do you want that life? You want the life that comes through grace, not of yourself, but a free gift of grace? It is available for every one of us. He has raised us up. He has seated us in heavenly places with Christ. And just quickly, I know it's getting a little late here. How do we overcome the devil? Because our flesh is dead, but the devil is not dead, right? He's still alive, and he's still very active, and he's walking around looking to see whom he may devour. We consider our flesh to be dead, and we resist the devil. Some of us have that backwards. We resist, we spend lots of time resisting our flesh, and we consider the devil to be dead. Do you know a poll, uh, I think it was 12 years ago, 2009, showed that 40% of Christians in America don't even believe the devil exists. 40% of people who call themselves Christians believe that Satan is not a living being. He's just a symbol of evil. He's symbolic of evil. And another 19% somewhat agreed with that. That's 6 out of 10 Christians who don't even believe in the devil. Their enemy. Imagine if in World War I, 6 out of 10 of the French army would not have believed that the Germans actually exist. They're like, it's just symbolic, right? You think the French would have stood any chance to win that war? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I don't have that problem, right? I know the devil is out there, and I recognize his work when I see it, and I am vigilant. But let me ask you this. How many of you can see the devil out there, but you don't see when he attacks you in here? That's where I have a problem. Because I feel like it's easier for me oftentimes to see the devil at work out there. Maybe in other people or in the system of this world, whatever. But sometimes when he attacks me, I think it's, it's just me. An irrational, discouraging thought hits me out of nowhere. And instead of recognizing where it came from, 
and exercising authority through Christ over the enemy, I just, I sit with it and I start agreeing with it. And it appears to be reality. And I just thought it because that's actually how it is. The devil comes very well disguised into your mind, your life. And that's how he gets you. He doesn't get you most times by roaring loud in your face, but by whispering into your mind and you think, "Uh uh-huh, that's actually the way it is. And you begin to come into agreement with that. Or you might start seeing irrational behavior in your kids. And you don't recognize it for what it is. You think, well, that's just, they're just short on sleep, right? You think it's just because they missed their nap. What if it's actually the devil coming against them with a strategic attack to take them down and to develop destructive patterns in their life? What if you could physically see it with your eyes? You see that there's a demon that has been assigned to your child to bring destruction in their life. Can you imagine the confidence with which you could say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. And yet oftentimes we don't see it when it's in our own home, in our own kids, or in our own life. We see it more clearly out there somewhere. That's why 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Be in a right state of mind about this. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He is everywhere doing these same kinds of attacks. Be sober-minded. What if a truck were going through Moxville down to the Ashboro Zoo and he's taking a load of lions down there and there's one in particular that is a known man-killer. Okay, He's gotten loose before and he has developed a taste for human blood and they're parked in Moxville at the shell and somehow this lion gets out, right? And he starts prowling through Moxville and a couple kids disappear. And the next morning you see on the news that that a couple of people who left their house are missing and there's just uh, some blood and and lion tracks all over the neighborhood. If you were to stop in Moxville and get out of your car, I'll bet you would look around. Okay, I know this is kind of a far-out illustration, right? Because we don't have lions. We're not even accustomed to the idea of having lions prowling. There's places in the world where they still do. They still look over their shoulder when they step out of their, their hut because there might be a lion there. Would you go jogging at night unarmed through Moxville knowing that this lion is on the loose and knowing that he's taken out several other people so far? I'll bet you would be very vigilant at the least. You might even develop some open carry habits very quickly. You would be watchful on the lookout. But sometimes we're not as watchful about our devil, our, our adversary, the devil, who is prowling around like a lion and he's looking for any opportunity to destroy you and your kids. The other day, Melissa and I were driving somewhere, and Landon had just become really extra restless. He's, he's an extremely active kid. But he had become extra restless and just uh, kind of unrestrainable, just became angry when you tried to restrain him at all. 
And we were driving down the road, and he was in his car seat, and he was still a little, uh, just not very happy with himself. And he's generally a pretty happy kid. And I started realizing, you know what, maybe there's a spiritual attack going on. It was, it was over a youth conference. And, and so I just looked at him in the rearview mirror, and I said, Lannon, in a very pleasant voice, I said, Lannon, I just want you to know you're not in charge of your life. <laughs> I said, okay. And he got this very sullen and angry look when I said that. And this is not generally like him. And I said it again. I said, Lannon, you're not in charge of your life. Okay? And he says, no, don't. And in that moment, I had a little window to see that there was an attack from the enemy against him. I don't know specifically exactly what spirit was coming against him, but there was an attack that was being launched from the enemy. And Melissa and I just started praying, and we renounced things. And within 30 seconds, his countenance completely cleared up, and his attitude changed. That's not saying that every time your kid has a nasty attitude that that there's a demon that needs to be renounced. But what if? What if we miss a lot of these attacks that are launched from the enemy because we're not being vigilant? We're not on the lookout from them. We're We're not sensitive to what's going on. And we have, we have the power. It's nothing to be scared of, right? We have the power through Jesus Christ. We have the authority to resist the devil. It says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You've been equipped with everything you need, strengthened with power, through His Spirit in your inner being, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith, rooted, grounded in love, comprehending what is the breadth and length and height and depth, knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, filled with all the fullness of God. This is the reality of the believer who's in Christ. So, now that we, all, we know all this, we can stand firm. We can stand firm in the promise of the Word of God. We can stand firm against the world and its systems and the lies that it is shouting at us every day. And it shouts them at you as you scroll through Facebook or Instagram or whatever. You can stand firm. You can resist that system through the power of Christ in you. You can stand firm against your flesh when its desires still rise up. Sneaky desires rise up and say, I want to be in control here. Just indulge me for a little bit. You can say, no, you're dead. You died with Christ. And I no longer live for myself, but I live for him. And you can stand firm and resist the devil. And he will flee with you. Ephesians 6 says, in all circumstances, take the shield of faith, wherewith you will be able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Not just most of them, but with the shield of faith, believing in what God says is reality, you can extinguish all the fiery doubts, darts of the wicked one. Now I'll just finish with this, with what Paul said in in 2 Corinthians when he spoke of the hardships they had suffered and the attacks from the enemy. He said, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere.